Good morning and welcome to Rising. We've got another great show for you all today. Brianna, what are we getting into? Well, Aaron Maté is going to help us wade through some of the latest developments out of Ukraine. And anti-war's Dave DeCamp will break down the escalating tensions around House Speaker Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. Then Texas GOP congressional candidate Cassie Garcia will discuss her campaign and the seismic shift among Latino voters toward the GOP. And our colleague Julia Manchester breaks down what's happening in today's Arizona primary race and what some key takeaways are as we look forward to other races. That's a lot of stuff. So we're looking forward to talking about that in a bit. But first, on Monday evening, President Biden addressed the nation to confirm a CIA drone strike over the weekend that killed top al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri, who succeeded Osama bin Laden as the leader of al-Qaeda. Let's watch. My fellow Americans, on Saturday, at my direction, the United States successfully concluded an airstrike in Kabul, Afghanistan, that killed the Emir of Al-Qaeda, Iman al-Zawiri. Now, justice has been delivered, and this terrorist leader is no more. People around the world no longer need to fear the vicious and determined killer. The United States continues to demonstrate our resolve and our capacity to defend the American people against those who seek to do us harm. Al-Zawahiri was reportedly a key figure behind 9-11 and took over after Osama bin Laden's death. American intelligence reports that the two missiles fired at al-Zawahiri did not kill anyone else. So it is uh, interesting. So he came to this compound in uh, Kabul in Afghanistan, uh, which is a, it was a Taliban safe house that he's been living in. I guess his family moved in there first, um, and then he's been there. Uh, I'm not quite sure when he moved in, but he hasn't left there in a very long time. Uh, apparently, we, the CIA, through our assets or whatever it is, we figured out that he was there and have been uh, kind of tracking him for a long time. I think they reconstruct. They made a model of his uh, of his base, mm -hmm. and they figured out his routine. And then, so they fired these two drone missiles that killed him while he was on a balcony mm -hmm. and only killed him. And according to them, and it's probably the truth, it, it did not harm anyone else, which is good news. Yeah, yeah, most certainly. It's not always how these things go. No, <laughs> sometimes it's not the right target, as uh, we've seen in the past. Yeah, so I mean, the question a lot of people are asking is, rightly or wrongly, what the political consequences of this are going to be and whether Biden is hopeful that this will be a feather in his cap during a time when there's not many victories that he can claim. You know, what do you think? Is this something that people are going to respond positively to and is going to be seen as some indicator that Biden is, quote unquote, doing something as so many people have been urging? I mean, I think fairly or not, people will see it as, uh, understandably, as a positive. Uh, this person was very involved in the planning of 9-11. Uh, there are some intelligence officials who believe he was actually even more involved and was more the intellectual architect of it, mm. even more so than Osama bin Laden. Um, is it, it, it's, it's a win for Biden, just like it was a win for Obama when bin Laden was killed. Yeah, now, that's well, mostly the work of... consider it to be a win Well, for no, Obama, well, exactly. no, and it is, it is true that it's mostly the work of intelligence officials, and it could have happened probably under any administration, and is not, I don't, 
if there's major differences in strategy being dictated to these intelligence agencies by the different presidents, that would be news to me. I don't think that's the case. In fact, probably these agencies operate a little too independently and do their own thing, regardless of who's telling them what to do in the White House. Probably the, the most interesting policy question that emerges is, you know, the, given the pullout from Afghanistan, we had an agreement with the Taliban. Trump had made this agreement. Mm. Biden had, you know, kind of co-signed it uh, after becoming president that the Taliban would would not do exactly what they did there. And it was obviously naive, I guess, to think that they wouldn't shelter um, al Qaeda terrorists. But you know, they are doing exactly what they agreed mm. not to do. And then the question becomes. You know, is it easier? I'm, and I'm sure, you know, more interventionist people, maybe in the Republican Party, maybe not, maybe in the Democratic Party. I have no, whoever is the interventionist party at this point, I'm not sure, uh, will make the case that this is the danger of pulling out of these countries or pulling out of Afghanistan. Yeah. And if we've been there, we're, we are better, we have more control on the ground or something over that. Now, I, I reject that argument. Yeah, I, that's I, I the Democratic you do Party's well. takeaway. Right. They will, they will <laughs> to be clear, I am not endorsing that at all. I'm saying yeah. that's what... Others are going to say the, the the other way of looking at it is this shows we do not need a ground presence there. We can continue to um, kill uh, absolutely legitimate targets like Al Zawahiri. I don't think, I, in my view, he's absolutely a legitimate target under our existing authorization to fight um, terrorism. Uh, we don't need a massive ground presence there to to get people like that. Is is kind of the other side of the argument. Yeah, no, I get it. I do think, you know, I saw, you know, some questions about there's a generalized concern about the limits of our use of drones, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. But to the pro-drone camp, this is a clear victory in part because it didn't cost us any American lives. And obviously it also didn't have these um, um, ancillary consequences that so many of these kinds of strikes do. So, you know, we'll see if this moves the needle in any way, shape or form. It does, you know, it does feel like so many years, 21 years after, you know, 9-11, when the country and the mood has shifted so dramatically from where this it was at the time. a very different country from 9-11 You know, 9 /11 with, with completely different political yeah. stakes to these kinds of, kinds of things. Even when it was closer to the fact, you know, Democrats have never really gotten a lot in the way of credit. It feels a little gross to frame it that way, but not much in the way of credit for these kinds of um, attacks. And now that the, the world has shifted into a place where there's a huge appetite for non-interventionism and people generally see a lot of what happens overseas as a distraction, rightly or wrongly, a distraction from, from the administration's failure to address concerns at home, I wonder if this is going to have much of an effect at all. That's a good point. I mean, this will probably be a one-day news story. There's yeah. so much going on. And, and really a one-day news story because there's so much more of interest to, uh, to voters and consumers of news right now. There's so much more to be worried about. 20 years ago, yeah, this would have been all people talked about. Right. They would have been celebrating the, the mood of the country yeah. was, so, was so different. Um, maybe not necessarily healthier. Not that the mood right. of the country is healthy now. Correct. But, uh, Washington Post White House reporter Tyler uh, Pager had noted that one of Biden's most successful weeks, if you want to call this a successful week, and I, I think it's fair to, uh, it's come while he's been in, under COVID isolation <laughs> following the chips bill passage, Manchin and Schumer's agreement on inflation reduction, and now the death of al-Zawahiri. Meanwhile, CNN analyst and anchor John Avalon uh, celebrated the administration. Let's watch that. I found myself being so emotional at this news because this is in some ways been the shoe that didn't drop even 10 years after bin Laden, knowing that or thinking that Zawahiri was still out there. And the fact that the U.S. took him out with a drone strike and took such care to minimize civilian casualties, apparently having none, 
That's more than Zawahiri or his colleagues did every day of their lives, where they intentionally targeted civilians to kill. And that's what makes this, I think, such a profound moment for the country and for just everyone who lived through 9-11. However, Fox News' Tucker Carlson had a different reaction to the news, as you might expect. Here's Tucker's take. A speech boasting that he's killed an al-Qaeda figure in Afghanistan. Great. Feel safer? Of course you don't. Nobody does. And the reason nobody feels safer is Biden's response to the disaster in Afghanistan. Rather than pause and learn from it, maybe fire the people responsible for it, not simply the self-destructive withdrawal from Afghanistan, but also the pointless 20-year war there, rather than do any of that like a normal person would do, Biden immediately set off in another direction, provoking yet another conflict, this one in Eastern Europe. And he provoked it. They lie about it, but it's true. The facts are out there, and it's very obvious. So just days after the Russian government announced yet again that if Ukraine joined NATO, NATO didn't even want Ukraine to join, but if Ukraine were to join NATO, then the Russian army would invade Ukraine. He's raising a lot of uh, legitimate points, and we're going to discuss Ukraine and Taiwan in much greater detail on the show in a little bit. I kind of wanted to respond to what John Athlon was saying. Mm -hmm. That was the CNN contributor about that, well, yes, there, there is no moral equivalence whatsoever between the U.S. and al-Qaeda. Obviously, that is true. Al-Qaeda deliberately kills innocent people. But we have, through our drone program, also inadvertently, but still, it doesn't, it doesn't matter to them, uh, killed innocent people, uh, mistakenly fine. So it's great that in this case there were no civilians yeah, killed, it, it but is a there was a framing. little bit of like we being really congratulatory <laughs> of ourselves for like 30 days without a workplace incident here. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. It's a weird framing for him to admit in that same sentence. Yeah, you know, this, it's amazing that there were no civilian casualties because all the because, time we have civilian right. casualties, and that's what the bad guys do every day. And like connecting the dots that that would tacitly make you the bad guy in all but this instance. It, it, it was a really odd framing. The Tucker Carlson response, I think, is expected. Do you think it's entirely fair? Do you think it's entirely fair to pivot immediately from, you know, you got the bad guy too, but you also are doing this bad thing? I mean, I, I agree with the substantive criticism of the provocation and, and all of the things that we've discussed with respect to the United States not taking responsibility for its role in the crisis in Ukraine and its continued role in continuing it, many would argue. But, you know, it does feel a little bit like, as a leftist who's never been particularly triumphant about these kinds of moments, I, it's weird to have seen the shift where there was a time when conservatives would at least applaud these kinds of moments. You know, we got the bad boy, cowboys and Indian style. This is a classic moment that Republicans used to applaud, mm -hmm. even if you also have another criticism of the broader foreign policy approach. Although I think I do remember Tucker being, forgive me if this is totally wrong, but if I recall, Tucker was a little critical of the Soleimani strike as mm -hmm. well, which under Trump, mm -hmm. uh, one of a, a well, one of several, actually, uh, moments where Tucker, who I, I think is much more ideologically committed or who's thought out uh, what Republican non-interventionism should look like, certainly mm -hmm. more so than Donald Trump, actually called Donald Trump out for deviating from that. So I think it's pretty consistent in in his case. Now, y yes, obviously, should we take should we take a minute to recognize that it's a good thing al-Zawahiri got destroyed? Yes. Uh, does it but it is also fair to criticize the Ukraine. Maybe you shouldn't do them in the same breath because they're different things. But, you know, we, I, I and I think you do to some extent, you know, substantially agree with 
uh, with, with the what are we doing in Ukraine? Now we're going to add sure. Taiwan to the mix. For sure. uh, you know, Biden ramped us down on one front and then immediately committed to this other one that is that is going is going very badly. Um, there's a New York Times column from Thomas Friedman, who is never someone I say you have to read Thomas Friedman. You have to read this column. It is it is very bad about the approach on both these fronts, um, which we'll talk about more in a minute. Uh, but first, we'll have your nope, my radar, right? Yes, it's your radar. <laughs> it's too, my Brianna. radar. I was going to say it's Brianna's <laughs> radar, but it's actually my radar. So I uh, hope you're all looking forward to that. Okay, Robbie, what's on your radar? Representative Peter Meyer is a Republican congressman from Michigan. His district was previously represented by Justin Amash, who's the first libertarian member of Congress. Meyer is a Republican rather than a libertarian, but many aspects of his record are friendly, in my view, to the principles of limited government. He has often channeled Amash's independent streak, most notably by voting to impeach President Donald Trump for inciting the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol. Here he is discussing that decision. I did not want in my first 10 days in office to impeach a president of my own party. Uh, but the fact of the matter is January 6th and the assault on the Capitol would have never happened if it wasn't for President Trump uh, you know, propagating two lies. One, that November 3rd was a landslide victory for Donald Trump that was stolen. And two, that January 6th was the day to stop the steal. And those two lies, um, which could have easily just faded away into nothing, uh, were continually amplified, legitimized, and propagated by Donald Trump. And it resulted in the deaths of five Americans, um, uh, the defiling of the seat of our democracy. Meyer's defiance of the Trump wing has earned him a primary challenger named John Gibbs, who's an ardent Trump loyalist who has backed the former president's stolen election claims, while also spreading conspiracy theories about John Podesta and Democrats in general. Now, some Republican primary voters cannot forgive any perceived betrayal of Trump, no matter how well-deserved it is. And thus, it's a close race. The primary election is Tuesday, August 2nd. That's today. Now, if Gibbs defeats Meyer, the challenger will have benefited from the financial support of a very curious source, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the DCCC, an arm of the party that works to elect Democrats. The DCCC spent $435,000 on an ad campaign aimed at boosting Gibbs in the final days before the primary. That's no trivial sum of money. As Meyer pointed out in a recent article for Barry Weiss, it was far more money than Gibbs had raised on his own and 100 times as much money as Trump himself had donated to Gibbs. The DCCC is trying harder to elect Meyer's election-denying far-right challenger than Trump is. The ad itself is quite insidious. It's aimed at conservative Republicans and takes the approach of lamenting that Gibbs is too conservative and handpicked by Trump. The DCCC is clearly highlighting Gibbs' proximity to Trump in hopes that enough of them will be tricked into spurning Meyer. Democrats' reason for doing this is obvious. They think Gibbs will be easier to defeat in a general election. Here's the ad. John Gibbs is too conservative for West Michigan. Handpicked by Trump to run for Congress, Gibbs called Trump the greatest president and worked in Trump's administration with Ben Carson. Gibbs has promised to push that same conservative agenda in Congress, a hard line against immigrants at the border and so-called patriotic education in our schools. The Gibbs-Trump agenda is too conservative for West Michigan. DCCC is responsible for the content of this advertising. 
Now we have to be realistic. Politics is a dirty game, and both parties routinely engage in this sort of brinkmanship, doing whatever it takes to win more seats. But Democrats boosting Gibbs are squandering considerable moral high ground they might have otherwise possessed on the issue of so-called existential threats to democracy. Democrats have claimed that Trump's hold on the Republican Party is a special threat to the entire U.S. political system, given that Trump has denied the outcome of the 2020 presidential election. Trump also pressured his allies in government to prevent the transfer of power to President Joe Biden. The January 6th committee hearings are intended to conclusively show that Trump and his ilk are morally unfit for office and that this reality transcends mere partisan disagreement over public policy. Trump is different. Well, how on earth can Democrats continue to make that argument with a straight face if they're willing to risk helping to elect a MAGA Republican over a more conventional Republican who did defy Trump in order to gain a slight political advantage? should be noted that Josh Shapiro, the Democratic candidate for governor of Pennsylvania, did the exact same thing. He ran ads aimed at ensuring that Doug Mastriano, who's an election-denying state senator who participated in the protests surrounding the U.S. Capitol, he was there on January 6th, Shapiro helped him win the Republican primary and become Shapiro's opponent. After this came to pass, Shapiro unsurprisingly performed a heel turn, denouncing Mastriano as, quote, a dangerous extremist who spreads conspiracy theories and wants to restrict the right to vote. Quote, if Democrats like Shapiro are going to position themselves as defenders of democracy standing against Republican attempts to undermine elections, they really ought not to help those same Republicans get elected, wrote Eric Boehm, who's a colleague of mine at Reason Magazine. Now, in his article for Weiss's Substack, Peter Meyer points to several other examples of this exact same phenomenon. I'm quoting from him now. It's not just my race in Michigan. While claiming the moral high ground, Democrats have been busy rewarding candidates like my opponent across the country. Colorado, Democrats spent $4 million on TV and digital ads to elevate January 6th attendee Ron Hanks over moderate businessman Joe Odia in the GOP Senate primary. Pennsylvania, as I just noted, Josh Shapiro boosted uh, the January 6th attending GOP candidate Doug Mastriano in television ads, spending in one ad double what Mastriano had spent on his own campaign. Maryland, in Maryland, the Democratic Governors Association spent hundreds of thousands of dollars boosting Dan Cox, who not only attended the rally on January 6th, but called Mike Pence a traitor as the violence unfolded. In Illinois, the Democratic Governors Association dropped $35 million on super PAC ads targeting moderate Republican mayor of Aurora, Richard Irvine, and elevating his election-denying Trump-endorsed opponent, Darren Bailey, who ultimately won the nomination. This strategy has backfired spectacularly on Democrats in the past. It was an open secret that the 2016 Hillary Clinton campaign was actively rooting for Trump to win the pres Republican presidential primary campaign. Clinton staffers reasoned that Trump would be easier for her to beat than the other candidates. We all know how that turned out. Expecting political figures to be more forthright is obviously a hopeless endeavor. There's something particularly craven about a political party cynically donating nearly half a million dollars to a stop-the-steal extremist in hopes that he takes out a more reasonable, formidable obstacle to securing that party's control over the House. All while the party's members are collectively weeping at democracy's supposed grave. Those are crocodile tears. And I should note, it's not all Democrats doing this. There have been several Democrats I saw in Michigan um, who condemned this ad and the role the DCCC was playing in it, uh, which is nice to see. Yeah, but you know what's funny? I was listening to Pod Save America yesterday, research, and <laughs> they brought this up. And the guest um, was Adisu Demisi. He's a former campaign manager for Cory Bush, Gavin Newsom, and some others. And they asked him what he thought about this strategy. And he kind of ducked. He was like, look, 
I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I haven't run this playbook before. He acknowledged that this is something that is broadly done and something that he supported in the past, sometimes successfully. But there did seem to be some acknowledgement that there was this public backlash from mainstream Democrats who are frustrated that their campaign dollars, all of those donate to Act Blue because abortion rights are on the chopping right. block, are being used for stunts like this. And I think that you're completely right when you say the rhetoric about the threat to democracy Trump and Trumpism poses is horribly undermined by even playing footsie with the idea of advocating for a Pied Piper candidate like this to get elected. Yeah, I think that's the clear difference, right? Because of how Democrats are framing the stakes of elections now, Trump unique corrupting influence must be gotten rid of. It's not just like, it's not some normal circumstance where they're, I guess, they're backing the far-right candidate to, for some narrow political victory. They're making the claim that anyone supporting these people, it's it, like they're trying to distinguish Trump-type Republicans from any other Republican. Yep. But then they're backing the Trump yep. one. And how do you <laughs> go to sense. bat for people like Liz Cheney to be like the next pre Democratic yeah, president yeah, of the United States of yeah, America yeah. if your grasp on... on on how courageous someone is to go against Trump is so thin that you would support the opponent of someone who is going up, who, who had the decency well, and, and the clear takeaway from, from this strategy is that if Liz Cheney, I mean, this is never going to happen in a million years, but if Liz Cheney was somehow making some bid to become the new face of the Republican Party, was her successful in those efforts, they would work to sabotage <laughs> them. To they would work to sabotage them because they want yeah. Trump, they, they want Trump front and center so they can run the campaigns against him. Yeah, well, you, you said in your radar, you know, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. I think that's very well put. We'll have more rising for you right after this. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is expected to touch down in Taipei this morning. However, the Biden administration continues to struggle with articulating the president's policy on Taiwanese independence. Here's President Biden himself on the topic earlier this year. Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes. You are? That's the commitment we made. The idea that it can be taken by force, just taken by force, is just not, is just not appropriate. And now here's National Security Council Coordinator John Kirby speaking from the White House yesterday. Repeatedly said that we oppose any unilateral changes to the status quo from either side. We have said that we do not support Taiwan independence, and we have said that we expect cross-strait differences to be resolved by peaceful means. According to the Washington Post, the White House has warned Chinese officials not to overreact to Pelosi's trip, with Kirby insisting the speaker's visit does not, quote, change the status quo. However, despite the White House's attempts to de-escalate, both the U.S. military and People's Liberation Army have deployed warships near the Taiwan Strait. Joining us now to weigh in is Dave DeCamp. He's a news editor for Antiwar.com and host of Antiwar News with Dave DeCamp. Welcome to Rising, Dave. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Uh, we're having a very uh, heavy foreign policy, uh, foreign policy day here on Rising. You know, give us your perspective on this trip from Nancy Pelosi uh, to Taiwan and how China might react. Yeah, well, you know, we've seen since the reports came out that Pelosi was planning to make this trip. We've seen all these reports that the Biden administration uh, fears that it could provoke a cross-strait crisis. We've seen Biden say that the U.S. military thinks it's not a good idea 
from Beijing's view, it's a provocation. Uh, we've seen U.S. officials say they will view it as a purposeful provocation. And to me, that's all it is. I don't understand what Nancy Pelosi could possibly accomplish in Taiwan that is worth risking provoking China. Um, and now you saw John Kirby say that the U.S. doesn't support Taiwan's independence, which is that's been U.S. policy since the 1970s, officially since 1979. We've seen some media kind of say that the Biden administration is caving to China because they don't support Taiwan independence. But that's U.S. policy. Now, what he also said is that they don't support any change of the status quo across the Taiwan Strait. But that's exactly what the U.S. has been doing over the past few years, starting under the Trump administration. Uh, we saw high-level U.S. officials start visiting the island more frequently. We saw more U.S. warships and warplanes deployed to the South China Sea and near Taiwan. We've seen a lot of informal ties growing, and they could say that as much as they want that, that and blame it all on China, but it really is uh, a policy that the U.S. has has started following over the past few years. Dave, yeah, there really does seem to be an inconsistency here between Nancy Pelosi's hate behavior and the messaging that's now coming out of the White House and also the kind of military repositioning in the area. I, I was reading some coverage of this, and they describe Nancy Pelosi's trip as, you know, a lark that could not be stopped. You know, the phrase that's something like, you know, there's nothing the White House can do if Nancy Pelosi decides to make a trip. <laughs> and that strikes me as a strange admission as to the weakness of the White House, the lack of, you know, uh, communication that's happening within the White House, or the utter disregard or respect that Nancy Pelosi has for Biden, or in the alternative, that it's a little bit of a fiction that she is doing this so independently. What do you make of that tension? Yeah, it's kind of hard for me to believe that if the Biden administration really didn't want Pelosi to go because of all these risks that they I, I believe that they could have pressured her not to go or Biden could have, as commander in chief, ordered some aircraft carriers out of the region and shown that they weren't going to support the trip, you know, because we saw those reports. But then again, we saw John Kirby say yesterday that, you know, she has the right to go to Taiwan and that the Chinese have no right to stop her. Um, so it does seem and it falls in line with the Biden administration's China policy, which has been very hawkish uh, following the Trump administration. Um Again, we've seen congressional delegations. Maybe their line is that they can't stop these congressional delegations. But the last one that we saw was in early July. Senator Rick Scott visited Taiwan and we saw China fly warplanes over the median line, which divides the Taiwan Strait. And I read a report in the South China Morning Post this morning quoting Chinese analysts and people close to the Chinese military. They think that uh, that's a likely response that we're going to see today is these Chinese warplanes going over that median line, which typically doesn't happen. And they think that now after this trip, things are going to change and it's going to happen more often. And we've seen an increase in uh, Chinese, the Chinese military's warplanes flying into what they call an air defense identification zone near Taiwan. It's not Taiwanese airspace. It's a different concept. I, don't, I can't really get into that, but mm -hmm. <laughs> they usually don't fly very close to the island of Taiwan. But that started happening at regularly after August 2020, when President Trump sent Alex Azar to Taiwan. That was he was his health secretary. That was the highest level cabinet official to visit Taiwan since 1979. The, the following month in September 2020, they sent Keith Crack. He was the undersecretary for economics in the State Department, and he was the highest level State Department official 
to visit Taiwan since 1979. So these are unprecedented steps. And since then, we've seen more Chinese military activity in the region. It seems especially stupid, the timing of it, this escalation, given that it's entirely chosen by the Biden administration, or not even the Biden administration, just by House Speaker Pelosi, uh, given what everything that the Biden administration is trying to accomplish in Ukraine, the the continued uh, funding of the war effort there. Uh, Biden has made very public statements about spending money doing whatever it takes to defend Ukraine from Russia. So why then? And, you know, you can have whatever opinion you have on that kind of decision anyway. But let's say we're doing that. What sense does it make to escalate tensions with China while we're presumably hoping that China is not getting overly close to Russia or being pushed in a Russian direction while we're trying to deal with this other it, it, it feels like an utterly chosen escalation at the worst possible time. I think that's it, it, that's what it seems like to me. I really just can't understand it unless they're trying to provoke a reaction from China. Because if you read, you know, the Pentagon, uh, the Biden administration, they put out all these strategy documents about countering China in what they call the Indo-Pacific now. And they want to really expand their military footprint in the region. So maybe they're looking for a reaction, a big reaction from China to say, hey, see, we have to go over there. And it's kind of this sick cycle where China responds to the U.S. uh, doing something. And then that's justification for more U.S. military assets in the region and ramping up tensions with China. But I think after this, you know, this might be uh, kind of a point of no return. It, it might really send U.S.-China relations really down into the toilet. I mean, they've been really bad in the past few years, but this, to me, just is completely unnecessary. And, you know, yesterday there was a non-proliferation conference in New York, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, and U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres, he said humanity right now is one miscalculation away from nuclear annihilation. Him and other officials have said that we're at a higher risk of nuclear war now than any time during the Cold War because of the war in Ukraine, because the U.S. is funding a war on Russia's border to the tune of billions and billions of dollars. And now we go ahead and stoke tensions with China. I mean, to me, it's completely uh, reckless and it needs to stop. But unfortunately, it seems like it's there's a pretty major bipartisan consensus for all this uh, madness. Hmm. Well, in a new op-ed, New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman called Pelosi's visit, quote, utterly reckless, dangerous, and irresponsible. In light of the U.S.'s current conflict with Russia, writing, quote, in short, this Ukraine war is so not over, so not stable, so not without dangerous surprises that can pop out at any given day. Yet in the middle of all of this, we are going to risk a conflict with China over Taiwan, provoked by an arbitrary and frivolous visit by the Speaker of the House. So it just feels like there's no strategy here. I I struggle to identify what the Biden administration's foreign policy even is, because on one hand, you have the pullout from Afghanistan, but then you immediately have a commitment to defend Ukraine at all costs. And now you have escalation with China, not even, I guess, being chosen again by Biden. It's so weird that Pelosi, and it's weird and just cannot be explained, Pelosi doing this on her own and kind of being, like, it sounds like they're unhappy with her doing it, but if they're really unhappy, they can obviously stop her. Yeah. I mean, although, Dave, you did you were saying that there has been an escalation even through the Trump administration of sending increasingly senior officials to Taiwan. I mean, is this a broader kind of foreign uh, blob of foreign policy decision that is not partisan and, you know, that has been building for many years? 
Yeah, absolutely it is. Um, you know, we saw in the 2018 national defense strategy that the Pentagon put out during the Trump years, that outlined the shift away from counterterrorism called uh, towards this so-called great power competition with Russia and China. And since then, we've seen kind of a drawdown from the Middle East. We're still very involved there, but all the drone wars that Trump ramped up, he kind of decreased at the end of his administration. And then we saw the Afghanistan withdrawal. Um, and now this is just the strategy, the overall strategy, the direction that uh, the establishment or the blob, whatever you want to call it, wants to go. If you, you look at all the really hawkish think tanks in Washington that are funded by the arms industry, uh, it's all about uh, this so-called great power competition with Russia right now seems to be the more imminent you know, uh, issue, I guess. But China seems to be in the long run. And we've seen this from just about every U.S. government agency, the Pentagon, the FBI, the State Department, CIA, say that China is the long-term uh, so-called threat. And we've seen Biden say this, and this is kind of the name of the game in Washington right now. And we even see this in some Repu Republican opposition to funding the war in Ukraine. We saw Josh Hawley, he wrote an op-ed in the National Interest the other day explaining why he's not going to vote to expand NATO into Finland and Sweden. And his reasoning was because we have to expand our military in the Asia Pacific. So that's kind of even those against the Ukraine policy seem to agree on the on the China issue. Well, Dave DeCamp, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. We'll be back with more Rising right after this. Yesterday, the Biden administration sent another $550 million arms package to Ukraine, including ammunition for high-tech rocket systems. President Biden has authorized over $8 billion in security assistance for Ukraine in the last year as the country grapples with crippling inflation. And some are taking heed. Senator Josh Hawley revealed yesterday he would vote against Finland and Sweden's bids to join NATO, adding that the U.S. should point to China as our biggest adversary, not Russia. Host of The Pushback on The Gray Zone and co-host of the Useful Idiots podcast, Aaron Mate joins us now to discuss. Aaron, welcome. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Uh, more funding for Ukraine's war, defense, etc. cetera. Uh, it seems like there's unlimited appetite among Biden and the Biden administration uh, to, to supply Ukraine in this way. This is a major foreign policy commitment, I guess, the administration has chosen. Um, my, my question is why? What do, you, what do you make of this? What do you think is going through their heads? Well, as Tupac said, they got money for war but can't feed the poor. And that is the dominant mentality in Washington. There's always endless money to fund the military industrial complex and to pursue U.S. hegemonic aims. That's what the U.S. agenda is in Ukraine. There's no concern here for Ukraine's sovereignty or territorial integrity. Those are just fancy words to dress up. But this, this really is a proxy war. And Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary, made that plain when he said, we want to use Ukraine essentially to weaken Russia. And I think people inside the White House see an opportunity to continue to weaken Russia by prolonging this war rather than go to the negotiating table, which they refuse to do. Anthony Blinken has said that he won't engage with Russia when it comes to the topic of Ukraine. They won't even have talks. And it's just amazing that they can be so nonchalant about this ongoing confrontation when it not only sacrifices Ukrainian lives, 
not only sacrifices lives around the world because of the rising food prices, but also continues to raise the threat of confrontation between the world's two top nuclear powers. Aaron, two things. One, is there any particular strategic significance to these particular high-tech rockets that are being purchased now? And also, has there been uh, any pushback from folks on either side of the aisle about this most recent package of aid? Well, U.S. officials claim that these weapons, these HIMARS, have been effective in destroying Russian positions. I'm not a military guy, so I'm not in a position to evaluate that. I suspect, though, that the dynamic remains what Antony Blinken said back when he was working for Barack Obama. And Blinken said very clearly that no matter how many weapons the U.S. pours into Ukraine, Russia will always have the overwhelming advantage because of Russia's proximity and its military size. It's right there, and it has a huge military. That was when Obama was refusing to undertake the very policies that Biden is carrying out now. And I think the, what Blinken and Obama said then stands today. But we'll see. Uh, perhaps U.S. officials will be proven correct and this will turn the tide of the war and Russian forces will be chased out. I just highly doubt it. And I'm sorry, your second question was? About who, if anyone, is pushing back on this? Oh, there's no pushback at all. No. Uh, just recently, there was a vote in the Senate to declare Russia a state sponsor of terrorism. And it was a unanimous voice, voice vote, including Rand Paul, who supposedly has been leading some of the anti-war sentiment in the Senate. That was unanimous. So, uh -huh. no, there's no pushback at all, except for a small faction of the Republican Party that occasionally votes no on these things. No, there's nothing because, you know, war is bipartisan. Uh, the only question is there are some people who want to devote more resources to confronting China rather than confronting Russia. But otherwise, the underlying policy of using Ukraine to fight Russia to the last Ukrainian is pretty much shared by everybody in both parties. Aaron, your outlet, The Gray Zone, recently published a piece about Zelensky freeing some really dangerous members of the Tornado Battalion as part of uh, Zelensky's plan to release prisoners with combat experience. Can you speak more to that? Yeah, I didn't write this article, but it's a chilling rundown of something called the Tornado Battalion, which, because the Ukrainian government is increasingly desperate uh, to fight off Russia, many of its forces have been killed, it recently released members of this battalion called Tornado that have been involved in really some sadistic crimes, uh, torture, uh, crimes against children. Uh, and these are the kind of forces that have been used by Ukraine, not just in this war, but in the uh, preceding eight-year war in the Donbass that kicked off after the U.S. backed a coup in Ukraine that ousted the elected government. And that set off a war between the new U.S.-backed coup government and rebels in the East who didn't want to live under their rule. And so in that war, and in this war now, Ukraine has turned to fascist battalions, including Tornado, and also the Azov Battalion. And that just speaks to the importance of not having this war. Instead of fueling a war that involves fascists, we should be calling for peace. We should be encouraging negotiations. Russia has laid out the basis for a diplomatic settlement from the early stages of this invasion. It will require some concessions on Ukraine's part. But the alternative is fighting Ukraine to the last, fighting Russia to the last Ukrainian. And I don't see how that's in anybody's interest except for warmongers in Washington. There was a great column by uh, Thomas Friedman in the New York Times uh, today, which I've now referenced several times on the show. I am just so, so surprised to agree with Thomas Friedman. Uh, but he talks about how, uh, according to 
I guess his contacts in the U.S. government, which I'm always curious, you know, why he doesn't tell us more about them, but uh, that there is uh, increasing doubts about Zelensky within the Biden administration, you know, this coming after after Zelensky has kind of consolidated one party rule, has has done autocratic things, has consolidated the media, has done all these things that is characteristic of regimes that we purport to oppose that, you know, if you're illiberal, if you're, you know, not playing by the norms of, you know, uh, Western style liberal democracy, you know, then you're, we don't want to support you. But of course, we do support those people all the time when we think it's nearly in our, in our uh, best interests. Uh, so, I, I, you know, I'm curious, how much longer do you think the Biden administration can claim this is some, you know, this is some ideological stakes, right, between, between Western-style liberalism and, and the kind of right-wing autocracy that Russia is in some sense, I guess. But like you said, there's, it's very confusing when you look at the details of who's on whose side. Yeah, look, even before Russia invaded, Zelensky had taken some authoritarian steps. He had banned three major opposition television stations. And this was done, according to Newsweek, as a welcome gift to the Biden administration. So this was in line with what Biden wanted. So this claim that we defend Ukraine because it's some bastion of liberal democracy, when it's also one of the most corrupt governments in the world, is a joke. And yeah, Thomas Friedman didn't explain what he meant when he said that U.S. officials are apparently growing impatient with Zelensky, so it's open to interpretation. What I take it as is that the U.S. is preparing to throw Zelensky under the bus when he's no longer useful. He's been very useful in being used as a U.S. tool so they can portray him as this hero. He gets these fancy photo spreads in Vogue magazine with his wife. He's, you know, uh, giving appearances at the Grammy Awards, at graduations for colleges to basically do PR and ask for more weapons. But once this runs out, once he's no longer useful, I think the U.S. will do to him what they always do to their assets and basically throw them under the bus. And he'll be rewarded possibly by a well-funded stint in exile. But the rest of his country will suffer. And for the sake of his country, I hope he will embrace the negotiations that the U.S. has deliberately stopped him from doing. That's an important point. In late March, Zelensky said he was ready to negotiate. There were plans for talks in Turkey between Russia and Ukraine. Boris Johnson, then the prime minister, was dispatched from the U.K. to go to Zelensky and tell him, sorry, no negotiations with Russia. And that was the end of that. That speaks to who's really in charge here. Well, Aaron, we always appreciate having you on. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And we'll be back with more Rising right after this. A new CBS Battleground Tracker poll is showing a major shift among Hispanic voters. The poll found that while 45% of Hispanic voters will vote blue come midterm elections, a record 42% of Hispanics will vote for a Republican. In contrast, CNN's 2018 exit polls found that a whopping 69% of Latinos voted for Democrats. Our next guest, Cassie Garcia, hit the campaign trail with GOP Congresswoman Myra Flores and is running as a Republican in Texas's 28th district against Democratic Congressman Henry Cuellar. Congressional candidate and former aide to Senator Ted Cruz, Cassie Garcia, joins us now to discuss this red wave. Welcome to the show, Cassie. Hi. Well, thank you for having me on. Yeah, it's great to have you. Uh, What do you think explains this real surge in support for Republican uh, policies and candidates among Latino voters? 
Well, first of all, I just want to say um, I am a proud third generation Texan, so I'm not the least bit surprised that many Hispanics are leaving the Democrat Party. I see it every day in my community. And South Texas is over 80% Hispanic. And when I talk to my neighbors, I meet people who tell me, Cassie, we're lifelong Democrats, but something has happened. This is no longer my Buelos Democratic Party. And they're right. The Democrats used to be a party of union halls and now Democratic leaders, like from Nancy Pelosi to my opponent, Henry Cuellar, sound more like the party of faculty lounges. So I think the problem is that when Democrats think of Hispanics, they think, hey, they're minorities. Let's talk to them about oppression and promise them amnesty and government programs. But those are not the priorities of our community. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think your point about the Democratic Party's kind of abandonment of labor as their central organizing principle is a real one. And I do think that a lot of it, of what they used to offer, has been placed by some empty rhetoric around identity. I, I am curious about this point about government programs, though, because you know one of the things that we observed uh, when I was part of the Bernie campaign, and he was so successful in Nevada, which is obviously a state with a large Latino population, is how popular a program like Medicare for All was with the culinary workers there, for instance, who were very eager to have, uh, you know, health care reform, significant health for, for reform, not just the kind of tinkering around the edges that both Democrats and Republicans typically support. Is that something that you've seen in your district as well? So we talk about the need for, for health care and affordable health care. And before the pandemic, Hispanics led the nation in the creation of new small businesses. And we work really hard to pursue the American dream. So we're not in the United States here patronizing lectures on victim murder to be called Latinx. Um, but to paraphrase Encanto, we don't talk about pronouns. No one has time for that. When Hispanics wake up, they're worried about their kids' schools and how they're going to make ends meet, not political correctness. And this economy is very difficult for our communities. Understand that over the last decade, millions of Hispanics have worked their way out of poverty and now no, somewhere between working and middle class. We also tend to have larger families, and I'm one out of four. So with Joe Biden's record high inflation, that means we have more mouths to feed, but less money to do it with. And Hispanics really get it. And that's why come this November, voters in South Texas and all across America are going to vote for a better way forward for our community and our country. Yeah, so if you don't talk about pronouns, I completely appreciate that, but I think a lot of voters are interested in knowing what affirmatively you are offering in terms of whether it's what you're offering for folks who aren't able to afford health care, what you're offering to folks that aren't able to afford food. You know, what is the plan? Do you support things like a continuation of some of the child uh, tax benefits that came down in the context of COVID? I mean, affirmatively speaking, not just what you don't like about what Democrats are offering, which I you know, can understand, you know, what would it look like? What, what would you do differently than uh, a Democrat like Henry Cuellar? Right. So talking to voters every single day, I'm talking to Democrats who are Republicans or even those who are Democrats who are walkaways. And they're telling me the number one, two issues concerning them every day is inflation, being able to put gas in their car, being able to buy having to make tough decisions, whether to put uh, gas in their car or buy eggs and milk for their children, and securing our border. We have the worst Biden border crisis ever in history, and that's, that's affecting our community in South Texas and District 28. So talking to the voters every single day, and we need real reforms. You know, we need, you know, people talk about being able to afford a health care. They're having to go to Mexico to get buy medicines, to get injections because it's affordable. People are driving to Mexico to save a dollar on gas. So we need true reforms and the administration keeps spending more and we're seeing inflation through the roof. And so we need to provide real relief to the families and communities of District 28. 
You were uh, profiled in a New York Times piece with Myra Flores and other uh, Latina candidates. You were described as a far-right Latina. Wanted to get your reaction to that label. Do you, do you like that label? Do you agree with it? I had people uh, text me that morning when the article came out saying, Cassie, I guess I'm a far-right Latina as well, or Latino, because I went to church three times a week. And so I grew up in a conservative household. I grew up at the border. I grew up to Republican parents, uh, hardworking. My mother and dad worked so hard. My dad worked two jobs um, to make ends meet for us. And so um, I just, the values instilled in me uh, growing up was to work hard and live the American dream. And so the reason why I am running for Congress is uh, to defend faith, family, and freedom. And so there's many more more of us like that when you talk to Republicans, you talk to Democrats every single day, you talk about real issues that are impacting uh, the communities. And so we just need a, a better way forward. The Democrats have left the Hispanic community and you're meeting more and more people that are saying, I've, I'm walking away from the Democrat party. And I'm meeting, going, do, we just door knocked this past weekend. And I met uh, some Democrat voters saying, Cassie, I, I'm leaving the Democrat party. I'm voting for you come this November. The Republican Party has been perceived, um, especially under Donald Trump, as more hostile to uh, immigration from the South to immigrants uh, than the Democratic Party, I think in in part because of the perception that uh, under the Obama years that these uh, immigrants were were supporters of the Democratic Party and Democratic policies. Uh, Now that that is, I think, the, the the group is far more up for grabs than people were willing to concede um, earlier. What, what do you think the Republican Party's, do you think its, it's messaging toward immigrants um, should change? Or, or, or what, what do you make of how the Republican Party has been handling uh, the immigration issue in the last few years? as a border patrol agent serving 26 years uh, to this great country and he's never seen the border um, this me- it's a mess and so I was the first to tour the Biden uh, Obama cages back in 2014 to see those right now what we're seeing the fact that the administration is allowing people to be hu- there's human smuggling happening people are dying losing their lives every single day and the fact that the administration has done absolutely nothing to secure our southern border Talk to voters on the ground in my district, in the South Texas community, they are frustrated. Talk to Democratic leaders, talk to Democratic judges. They're saying the administration has done nothing to secure us on the border. Talk to the landowners who are finding dead bodies. Talk to the sheriffs who are saying this is an invasion. This is absolutely, you know, we just had a tractor trailer, 53 migrants who died. This is happening every single day. And we're trying to figure out solutions to provide more body bags to sheriffs. You know, we're trying to help our border patrol agents do their job and secure southern border making sure that we provide them the tools they need to do their job so we can't be you know we're, we're talking about blaming democrats blaming republicans at the end of the day this is an american issue we need to secure our southern border and democrats have done nothing nothing to secure us on the border that's why we are going to see uh uh elections uh, our, our our community flipped and i'm going to be the first hispanic latina to ever represent district 28 because i am working for them to solve help them with their issues and to secure our southern border the national border patrol council who's always endorsed democrat henry Quare, did not endorse henry Quare in this election in this cycle they've endorsed me in this race because they know i will always have their backs and know that i will work for them to give them the tools and resources they need to do their job. Right now, the administration does not have their back. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, uh, Cassie, the, the framing of, uh, you know, candidates as first kind of celebrating uh, identity is something that has been really 
uh, attributed to a democratic style of politics. But I hear you championing yourself, I would argue perfectly legitimately so, as you know, a Latina and, and drawing on some of your personal experiences with your family and how hard your father had to work and struggle uh, in the course of your guys' lives. And I wonder what you make of the choice to frame yourself that way and the increasing ways that Republicans are talking about the identity at the same time that they criticize Democrats for doing the same. At the end of the day, I'm an American. I love this country so much. I love my church. I love my family. I love my community. I love giving back, and I love helping people out. So at the end of the day, I'm an American, but I am a conservative. I am Republican, and my parents worked hard not to be on subsidies, you know, but there are subsidies for a reason, to help people out, to give them a hand out, not a hand up. And so, I'm sorry, to give them a hand up, not a hand out. And so that's what we're seeing. You talk to the Democrats, people on the ground, talk to voters, you know, they're telling you, uh, they're trying to suppress us. They're trying to keep us down. They don't want to help us out. At the end of the day, I'm wanting to work for everybody, for the moms, the dads, the law enforcement community, for teachers, for veterans. Put veterans first. I don't know why we're setting veteran resources to our southern border to help out the migrants when we have veterans that are waiting in line to see doctors, are waiting to get prescription medications. And so I want to make sure that we put Americans first, but we need to solve. We need to secure our southern border. We need to close it. We need to streamline the process we need to make it easier if people want to come here we support legal immigration well, not well, illegal immigration Kathy, i just i want to be just a little bit more specific i really appreciate all that you're saying but so for example you you talk about veterans i wonder what you make about this latest fracas over so many republicans voting to stall this veterans bill that seemed to be very uncontroversial you know supporting burn victims what do you make of your party members of your party's choice to vote something down like that well, I think at the end of the day, we need to make sure I support veterans and, you know, I'm not a member of Congress. Would you have Congress. supported that bill? Well, there was a lot of pork in that bill that was not going to help our veterans. And so I think we need to, when I am a member, when I'm elected, we need to do standalone bills and not put bills that are packaged with pork. And, you know, that's something we've seen time and time again in Congress. We need to do standalone bills that are going to protect and help our veterans, not package things together that attend a lot of pork that's going to, we already have, we're talking about inflation, we keep spending money. But I agree, we need to help our veterans. But this bill was a lot of pork that was not going to help what, our was veterans Was there something out. specific in the bill that you objected to, Cassie? I haven't looked at the entire bill, but I know that there were certain sections of it that contained um, extra spending in there that was not pertained to the veterans on there. Cassie Garcia, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And we'll have more Rising right after this. So here's something I thought might be interesting to talk about, Brianna. Uh, so Brian Griffin is apparently a comms person for mm -hmm. Ron DeSantis, and he shared on Twitter that The View had sent to him an invite for DeSantis to come on the show, and he kind of kicked it to Twitter, um, saying The View emailed our office on Friday asking for us to arrange an interview or an appearance uh, with DeSantis. They wrote, we would be honored. Thoughts. Like he wants kind of Twitter <laughs> DeSantis fans to weigh in. Then ultimately, so he also shared this on Twitter. Here's our response. Thanks for the invite. I understand you are sending this request on behalf of your team. But are the hosts of the view really interested in hearing from Governor DeSantis about all the important work he's doing on behalf of Floridians? 
blah blah blah, and then and then links to several times where members of the View, hosts of the View, called DeSantis crazy thing, like called him Death Santis, and you know <laughs> accused him of killing everyone during COVID, accused him of being a fascist and a bigot. I mean, these are direct quotes. Death Santis, I think he's a fascist and a bigot. That's something Sonny Hostin said. So ultimately, uh, then this press person tells the View, we will pass on this offer. And, and then says, actually, maybe they were coordinating through the, the wrong office, because I guess he's the press person for the official governor's office, sure. um, whatever. But then Christina Peshaw, who's the, the DeSantis comms person that I know better, I think better known, and mm-hmm. is very vocal on Twitter, responded, perfect. Nothing that infuriates liberals more than seeing their own insane words repeated back to them. Uh, with, so this, I think, is, is worth talking about because it's very indicative of DeSantis's strategy um, uh, vis-a-vis this Christina Peshaw comms person. The strategy is just not to bother doing media appearances with hostile media, which is everyone in the mainstream media. And I wonder what you, as a former uh, comms person for a, I expect DeSantis to eventually be a presidential uh, uh, comms team, uh, just like Sanders. So I wonder what you thought of it. My thought is that this is actually a missed opportunity. Maybe I'm an old-fashioned news mm-hmm. guy. I think it's only to DeSantis's benefit to appear on The View. Is he going to get harassed by, he's going to get some crazy comments, sure. But, uh, you know, he wants more people outside of narrow conservative political Twitter to know who he is, I would I would say do it. Look, there's a way you can play this where if he went on and were really gracious and had a winning personality, he could create a contrast between how he presents and how he's been characterized yes. on the show that make the hosts look foolish. However, it is not my understanding that he's a particularly charming person. No shade, that's just most politicians don't have that magic touch necessarily. And also the view is a particularly intimidating environment. You have ratios that are not good for you if you go on there as a conservative or as a leftist, I might add. Bernie Sanders never had an appearance on The View that wasn't disastrous. And my humble opinion was that it was not worth him going Mm. on that particular show. I remember at one point, I think uh, Whoopi Goldberg said to Bernie, hey, this guy Andrew Yang has this idea about the 1% versus the 99%. Have you ever heard of it? Bernie's looking at the camera like a Larry David pig because, of course, it's, he's the guy. He mm-hmm. popularized the idea. But all of all of that aside, you know, it is a potential opportunity. But I also completely understand the. She probably the high just got medical advice from Dr. Jill. <laughs> <laughs> but look, here's here's also what the view has to live with. There's 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 a thing called access journalism, right, where you don't say things that are truthful about folks because you want them to come on the show. And I would not advocate for that. But there also is a way that you can make your criticisms in a way that conveys a certain respect for the position that keeps the door open for them actually wanting mm-hmm. to come on and talk to you. Because nobody's ever going to, if I'm like, you know, Robbie, you're a poopy head, you know, mm-hmm. you're never going to want to come and do my show. No, I can say my legitimate criticisms of you, I'm, I'm a thicker skin. I can put up with a lot more <laughs> criticism than the rest of the people in this business. But, no, but uh, you know, I, don't, I don't blame anybody yeah. who has been critiqued, especially if they believe they've been critiqued in bad faith. To want to come on a show. Yeah, no, I agree. But I, so I think, though, DeSantis needs to be able to do 
what you just outlined, yeah. uh, or else he's not going to be as good a candidate as everyone in the Republican circle wants him to be. Frankly, I don't know how well he handles, he handles himself in these kinds of situations because I haven't seen him do a lot of them. Maybe he used to do I them and doesn't do them anymore. Maybe he knows. Maybe he knows well, he's got more Bloomberg vibes uh, than hmm. Obama vibes in terms of personal well, charm. That's not a good sign because eventually you have to do, or maybe you don't. Maybe just now we're so in our own media bubbles, he'll just do his own supportive kind of conservative media thing, won't have to be um, challenged. Look, I get it. Yes, it'll, there'll be hostile interviews. It'll be un unpleasant. But if he does just what you said, it could be disarming. It, it could, could be. It could help. So I think it is a missed opportunity. And I, I think it's something I increasingly see from Republicans in a DeSantis mold, that there's no there's no reason to talk to anyone outside, you know, the loyal and, fans. And that's the Republicans' whole thing not, right now, is, right? It really the, is. The conservative ethos. And then you can't turn around and say, oh, the liberals are so intolerant. Yeah. They're so easily offended. They're so sensitive. Uh, you know, they can't. Facts don't care about your feelings. They can't. Mm -hmm. They're 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 little emotional bubbles. Well, then don't don't dwell in a bubble yourself. Yeah. I mean, personally, I'd like to see it. Uh, yeah. I like to see It'd be great TV. entertainment value. Please do it. Please do it. I know we have per we have to admit our own perverse incentives here, it's right? True. It's we true. We absolutely want it to happen. But also, you know, for the sake of capital D democracy or whatever you want to call it, we do need to have. I think forums like that. Whatever you think about the substance of the view and its host, I do think that roundtable format and having a, you know the ability to talk over multiple commercial breaks and have a more fulsome conversation is exactly the kind of format we need more of outside mm -hmm. of like the seven minute kind of news cycle-y um, format that we typically get. Because there are hard questions that need to be asked and you know, contextualized. And there are follow-ups that need to be asked that aren't often asked and people don't have the opportunity to ask. So I would like to see it done, but I also wish we lived in a world where you know, some of the view hosts were able and willing to engage with him on the things that he should be engaged with, the things that I think he is justly criticized for, and leave some of the uh, ad hominem kind of uh, fun, fun name stuff. He let those beaches be open, and uh, oh no, all the people who are coviding during beach, that kind of that kind of stuff. Yeah, but I mean, I said it once. I'll didn't say hold it again. Up well. Democrats over overreaching and and criticizing for more than they can act, charging people for, for more than they can actually prove is a problem with their own credibility and it lets people like DeSantis who I think can be rightly criticized on a whole host of things get off the hook. Yeah, well we'll be looking out for that interview. Fingers crossed, but they apparently said no for now. Maybe that will change. We would lo we would love to have Ron DeSantis on if he's yeah. if it's he's, and yeah. Joy Bear. I, I'd be kind of friendly. You'd be kind of hostile. It'd be better. It'd be a better experience it'd than be the View. Better, be better experience yeah. than the View. We're at least I think we're a little, little not, better not informed. Hostile. I'm not hostile, but I would be. I would be. You'd be critical. Fair. You'd be critical. <laughs> All right, we'll have more rising right after this. A recent News Nation Decision Desk poll of over 1,000 voters found that moving into the midterm elections, 61% of voters are worried about President Biden's health. The poll also saw a growing focus on crime among voters. 62% still see inflation as the biggest issue in the country, but concern for crime was up 3% from June. Additionally, 61% of voters think Biden should not run for re-election in 2024. More specifically, 30% of Democrats don't want Biden to run again, and 26% of Republicans don't want Trump to run. Political editor at News Nation, Chris Steyerwalt, is here to weigh in. Welcome, Chris. Good to be with you guys. So here's the reality of the situation. 
enormous numbers of Democrats, of course, unsurprisingly, large quantities of Republicans don't want Biden to run again. But there is this issue of whether or not a replacement for Joe Biden in this kind of unprecedented way would damn the Democrats even more than his low poll numbers. What do you make of that tension? Well, the thing is, normal people aren't paying attention uh, to this kind of stuff. So uh, when you look at a poll like this and you see who Democrats' other choices are, basically it's a name identification poll. Uh, Mm -hmm. I find very interesting here uh, when you look at uh, how do independent voters, because what we're really talking about, of course, always to win a general election means you're going to need to win the independents. When you look at independent voters with Biden, 63% of independents don't want Biden to run again. Uh, while Trump and Biden are about the same with their own party, Trump at 26, Biden at 30%, not wanting them to run. Trump does even worse with independents uh, for a third candidacy. 65, almost 66% of independent voters said they didn't want Trump. Um, when you start looking down the list of who else it might be, it's too early. And on the Democratic side, it's uh, it's it happens in a strange space because Biden hasn't yet said uh, that he's not going to run. I think there's a pretty decent chance that Biden will bow out of this really? uh, in a time, yeah, in a time early enough to allow uh, his party to sort itself out. We'll see how the Democrats do in midterms, and the Democrats' performance in midterms will have an effect on this. But I would not at all, I would not be at all surprised to see Biden step aside after mid, or not step aside, but say that he was not going to seek another term after midterms. That's interesting. I mean, we're hearing that uh, more and more. I think from expert people like yourselves, I, I, I tended to think Biden would stick it out just because he has to deal with the problem that who is more popular in the party other than him you know, despite his his sagging approval numbers. Now, he has had, it looks like he's having, I guess, a better week than he's had before. Um, some legislation gets got passed. Maybe the, you know, inflation, gas, not the economic situation might be kind of improving down the, down the horizon. Um, obviously, we killed a terrorist, so there's that. Uh, do you think, is it possible we've kind of, Biden's like low, low tide fortunes have been hit and you're going to see some rebounding as we approach the midterms? Well, don't under, don't underestimate the political value, especially uh, in the in the longer term of the killing of al-Zawahiri uh, in Afghanistan. Biden had a bad foreign policy story to tell in Afghanistan. So this is significant because it helps him tell a better story there. Um, foreign policy doesn't drive midterm elections usually, though. The real driver, of course, here as we see, inflation, even among Democrats, it is their top concern. Uh, crime, uh, I, the, on, on the crime front, something very interesting to me. So 48, 48.3% of Democrats uh, said it was very important to their congressional vote. 39% said it was somewhat. So that's 88.1% of Democrats said crime was important to their midterm vote. Uh, that's more than among independents and almost as high as Republicans. This crime issue, just like inflation, cuts across all these lines. And with Democrats, especially because they tend to be urban rather than rural, Republicans are the party of rural America, uh, Democrats are the party of urban America. So you have a lot more Democrats living in cities where crime is is prone to be a greater problem. Uh, so I think those kinds of considerations, I guess I'll put it this way, Biden is not considered a good president. Uh, Democrat, his, he has a, <laughs> what does he have? With, with uh, Democrats, he has an 82% approval rating. 
Um, that sounds high, but it really should be 90, right? The reason that Biden's overall approval rating is as low as it is, is because a significant number of Democrats don't approve of his handling of the job. Can I point you guys to why this election cycle is so weird? Please. Sure. Okay, so in 2018 at this point, I looked it up before I talked to you. <clears throat> in 2018 at this point, uh, Donald Trump was 11.4 points underwater in his job approval rating. So it was not therefore surprising, and this is, I just used 538, you do whatever you want. Uh, but it was not surprising therefore that Democrats would have a 7.9 point average advantage in the generic ballot. So you look at this poll, you see that Biden is further underwater in our poll than Trump was on average four wow. years ago, 14.4. Okay. So that should be terrible, right? Because here's what we know about midterm elections. Basically, the generic ballot is going to track with presidential job approval. So if, if Biden's doing worse than Trump, therefore, what should we expect on the generic ballot? Well, guess what? It's the opposite. Democrats are ahead in the generic ballot in this poll by 1.2 points. That is not what we typically expect to see. If you would have told me without showing me the generic ballot number, I've got a president uh, underwater by uh, 14, 14 and a half points. How's his party doing in midterms? They're going to get slaughtered. But instead, Democrats hold a statistically insignificant advantage, uh, but an advantage nonetheless. And this tells us something about the, the, the cross forces that are at work here in this midterm cycle. Mm. Well, that poll also found that voters' attitudes toward the economy are improving slightly, with 48% of voters saying they are worse off financially than they were a year ago, a 5% decrease from June. You know, is this, is this part of what's affecting, you think, the, the Democrats' um, uh, midterm chances not looking quite as bleak as you would have predicted? Or does it have something to do with the fact that Biden's low approval has has to do with his age and people's concerns about his health and less so a broader commentary on how the Democratic Party is doing. Watching Joe Biden give a press conference is like watching an old dog on a freshly waxed kitchen floor trying to get across. Uh, you know <laughs> the paws are going out from under. It's got You just, America holds its breath as Joe Biden attempts to communicate. And by the way, I should point out, that was true before he was very old, right? That mm -hmm. was true. He's He has always been a mangler of syntax uh, and uh, easily distracted. Here's what I think is happening a little bit. So uh, one of the questions in the poll was, are you going to be more motivated to vote as a result of recent Supreme Court decisions? Uh, and I found this particularly interesting. So you have uh, among black and Hispanic voters, huge, big increases as compared to white voters overall. Hmm. Uh, and then among Democrats and Republicans, 70.6% of Democrats said that they would be more likely to vote in the midterms as a result of uh, Supreme Court decisions. That's more than 20 points ahead of Republicans. I hmm. think what's going on here is, so midterms generally favor Republicans, when we talk about the generic ballot, if the generic ballot's tied, the Republicans are going to win the House because of Montana is a state. Uh, there, mm -hmm. there, are, there are a lot of reasons that Republicans have, and it's uh, to, to control the House, it's better to be a rural party, frankly, right? Uh, because you, every, every state gets a representative and all of that stuff. So the Republicans have a structural advantage. They also have historically a turnout advantage. 
when Democrats were overwhelmingly the party of the working poor, it's hard to get poor voters to go out. It's hard to get voters with lower educational attainment levels to get out and vote. And historically, Republicans have had like a half a point or whatever, or eight-tenths of a point advantage when it comes to uh, midterm election turnout. What we see here is that these Supreme Court decisions and just general alarm about the Republican Party, general alarm about Donald Trump, general alarm about what is going on inside the, the here's the, the shortest way I can say it. The Republicans are too weird. If the Republicans were more normal, then they would be thriving, right? It would be great. And uh, they would be up the way that Democrats were four years ago. But the Republicans can't calm down and they can't sit still. And as a consequence, what they're doing is motivating Democratic voters. They're taking Democratic voters who might sit this out to punish Biden for not being liberal enough or progressive enough. Uh, let's take Ohio as a great example. Tim Ryan is no progressive Democrats dream date, right? Mm -hmm. He's a intentionally moderate uh, and branding himself as much as he can as a centrist. If you're a Democrat who lives in Cleveland or Cincinnati or Columbus, and you think, I, I don't need to go vote for Tim Ryan, I don't care, two things are going to help you. Number one, the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs raises the value of every Senate seat for every Democrat. And then number two, J.D. Vance is really weird. And when you when you put those two things together, you get a strong motivator for Democratic. Uh, now, this may change. This will change. I don't know in which direction it will change. But as a snapshot in time, this poll talks about uh, a party that has strong structural disadvantages, but this weird wind blowing in its in its favor. And, and the weirdness being somewhat connected to Trump himself, right, who, who is not a figure that even a lot of people in the Republican Party wants to see run again, but who is not, who is certainly not sworn off running again and is, in fact, giving many indications that he will run again. At the same time, you know, you had the January 6th committee hearings going on, uh, I, I think more uh, the fever sort of breaking a little bit, I've, I've used that phrase on the Republican side, to realizing that Trump would not be, Trump's continued presence or command of the Republican Party it, it does not make good political sense for the Republican Party, but he is still such an important factor to it. He's not, he's not off stage enough for Republicans to be able to counter the narrative that Democrats have that, you know, the Democrats obviously portraying him as still, still the guy, you know, they want, they want people scared of, of, of Trump at all times and going to the poll for that reason. And because Trump has not really exited the scene, those arguments can be persuasive. Do you think there's some of that? Uh, as I am fond of saying, there's only one thing that Donald Trump, uh, the mainstream press in the United States and the Democratic Party agree on, which is that every political news story should be about Donald Trump. Uh, <laughs> And look at Missouri. Eric Greit, so uh, Missouri is a Republican state. Uh, it's not close. There's no reason that Missouri should be competitive in any way. But uh, Missouri Republicans may nominate Eric Greitens, the super creepy, scandal-soaked former governor of the state who resigned in disgrace. That's the last person that you would want to nominate. But there is the, you know, the fever that you talk about inside the Republican Party is the one that afflicts both parties, which is uh, the iconoclastic desire to destroy what is present, right? To tear right. down what is present. Democrats are dissatisfied with Joe Biden. Uh, cool, cool, cool. Uh, what do you got? What else you got? And the time for Democrats to have a discussion about that is after midterms, right? The time for de what Democrats should do now is suck it up 
and support the home team and get it done and move on to the next thing and have the next fight. Republicans aren't even close to that point. They're not even close to being ready to grow up and talk about these kinds of things. You say Trump hasn't exited the stage. Trump is commanding is is the commanding presence inside the Republican Party. And the biggest reason he has to keep running or um he can't give up the idea that he might run is that he has to be a credible threat to these people because the moment that Donald Trump says, eh, I'm not running, right? If, if Joe Biden said, I'm not running again, Democrats would throw him a parade. We salute you. His, uh, Joe Biden's approval ratings would go up 15 points. <laughs> if he, I'm serious. If he, if he said he wasn't going to run again and he would have a successful last two years of his term because he could quit sucking up to weirdos in his own party mm-hmm. to try to hold on to his seat in the next, uh, in the next, presidential campaign. But the reality for Republicans is uh, much starker, which is as long as Donald Trump is a credible threat to be president again, the Kevin McCarthy's of the world and the other people who know better will not stand up to him. They're not going to do that because they're afraid of him and they're afraid of the fact that he might be president again. And uh, it was such a Mr. Toad's wild ride when he was president last time. Uh, They know that he will be there for vengeance and they know that he will be there to hurt and destroy. So they're not going to make any moves. So that is uh, a necessary perception for Donald Trump. Trump delivered some of that characteristic roller coaster sort of attitude uh, late yesterday, issuing an endorsement in that Missouri Republican Senate Republican primary, just the first name Eric, <laughs> uh, because there's actually two Eric Reitens and his, his competitor, Eric uh, Schmidt, I believe, uh, both same first name. So tr- that was Trump's way of not endorsing in the race, uh, I guess, or, or endorsing both those candidates in just the most chaotic kind of attention seeing um, uh, Trump style uh, ever. But uh, well, we got to go. Chris Dyerwald, thank Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Great to be with you guys. We'll have more rising right after this. Primary elections are set to take place in a number of key states ahead of the November midterm elections and the battle between former President Donald Trump and establishment Republicans like former Vice President Mike Pence and Governor Doug Ducey is continuing today in Arizona. In the GOP gubernatorial primary, Trump has backed TV news anchor Carrie Lake, while Pence is supporting businesswoman Karen Taylor Robson. The outcome of today's Arizona elections could be telling of a direction in which the GOP might be moving. The Hill political reporter, Julia Manchester, joins us now to tell us what we should be watching for today. Welcome, Julia. Thank you for having me. So how does it look like this one's going to go? Is uh, establishment Pence on the upswing or is it still Trump country? You know, it seems like according to the polls that we have seen, it is still Trump country. We know that Carrie Lake has been in this race for roughly a year. She has very name, a high name ID. She's a former television news anchor in Arizona. And we've heard Trump talking about her and many prominent Republican uh, figures in Arizona politics on the Republican side, such as the GOP chairwoman Kelly Ward also boosting her. So that's definitely going in her favor. That being said, we've definitely seen Karen Taylor Robeson get some momentum in the polls. The problem is she just doesn't have that high name ID. And a lot of sources I was actually talking to yesterday really question whether the Pence endorsement really helped her. Yes, she has the endorsement of Governor uh, Doug Ducey, definitely a big Republican name in the state. However, there's a question as, you know, what how, if Pence's star power really matches that of President Trump's. And right now in the polls, it seems like she's a bit behind. However, we do know that there are often surprises 
surprises in Arizona, so we will have to see. Kara Lake has been very much on the stolen election beat. She has made it a really focal point of her, her campaign. She has not shied away from talking about it. She's, I've, I've seen her on Fox um, being interviewed by Brett Baer, and she actually got combative with him for not covering the election being stolen enough. Um, from her perspective, obviously the election was not actually stolen, to, to be clear. Don't come after us, YouTube. Uh, it's something she's you know just really made the central focus. So my, my guess would be if she's rewarded for that, if she you know wins this race uh, today, then it's, it looks like uh, Republicans who want to move on from Trump, who want to move on from talking about the election, it'll be a lot harder for them to say, yeah, this is what our base wants. Our base is sick of relitigating 2020. We want to talk about the future. When this person who really talks about the last election a lot uh, wins. Yeah, and that's a very good point that you make. And it's not only Carrie Lake in Arizona that's talking about this. We have the attorney general's nominees in Arizona running on the Republican side talking about this. Mark Fincham, who's running for secretary of state, he's been talking about this quite a bit. Blake Masters um, is a Senate candidate uh, running the front runner in that primary. He's talked about this as well. So you basically have Republicans up and down the ballot in Arizona continuously talking about uh, the election being stolen or what they, the unproven claim, I should say, that the election was stolen. And stolen. they're very cow, much kowtowing to President Trump's uh, voter fraud claims. But I think context is very important here because if we look at the history of Arizona, um, look, Arizona was definitely at one of the major launching pads for President Trump's 2016 presidential race. We know that he's made a lot of visits there. We know that he took it quite personally when he lost that state. Um, a lot of uh, state Senate Republicans uh, very much spearheaded that audit that was uh, notoriously held there last year that actually found that President Biden won by a slightly bigger margin. But we know that Arizona is very important to President Trump. And I think you see all these major MAGA figures in Arizona very much echoing that. The issue is once you get out of a primary, how do you get those independent voters? Because in Arizona, you can't really win a race going far to the left or far to the right, you have to very much stray to the middle, or at least we've seen that in recent elections, whether it's Mark Kelly or Kirsten Cinema, for example. Uh, Doug Ducey definitely is more conservative. However, we do know that his opponent in his last election, um, you know, according to people I've chatted with in post-election anal analysis, they would say that it's his opponent went a bit too far to the left. So it's really about striking that right balance in Arizona. And there is a fear among um, many Republicans that this current slate that Trump has endorsed will go too far. And then there is also Missouri. Last night, President Trump weighed in on the GOP primary there, endorsing Eric, no last name, just Eric, <laughs> which led to some slight confusion given that both rival candidates, and there's more than just the two of them, I think there's even a third Eric there somewhere, Eric Greitens and Eric Schmidt. Uh, so Trump chose chaos, apparently, and it, it was it was deliberate uh, in his statement. Then, you know, he said, I trust this decision to be made by Missourians. 
Um, so he was not actually endorsing uh, one particularly, although both campaigns took said that this counts as an endorsement. Both put out statements saying Trump has endorsed me, which was kind of uh, kind of hilarious. Uh, yeah, this race being interesting because Eric Greitens, uh, one of the two candidates, is uh, a former uh, former Missouri uh, uh, political figure um, who was, you know, who kind of who resigned in disgrace. I think there was a point where attorney, then Attorney General Josh Hawley was uh, looking at having to prosecute him for uh, some really, uh, really out there scandals. And, you know, to have him make, mount a political comeback as like the more Trumpy kind of uh, candidate. Uh, but so it was interesting. It was going to be interesting to see if Trump was going to pull the trigger and endorse him as I think some members of his inner circle or even his family have wanted him to do or are supporting Greitens. But he didn't quite do it. But uh, what he did was, I guess, characteristic for Trump. Just Eric. And vote for any, any old Eric. <laughs> well, I think this is what we in the business would say, walking a fine line. Look, Eric Greitens is someone politically who probably very much matches up with President Trump. However, he has been tainted with all of these scandals, most recently being accused of domestic abuse by his ex-wife. So that's obviously, a, you know, he obviously has a tainted record in that regard. And you have the GOP establishment, whether it's Rick Scott in the um, Senate Republican Campaign Committee, or you have um, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell very publicly saying that they are concerned about the prospect of a Greitens candidacy because if Greitens were to win this primary, you know, Missouri should be an easy state for Republicans. But it's so easy for the Democratic nominee, whether it's Lucas Kuntz or uh, 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 the, the, one of the, some of the other Democrats running in that race, to point at that and say, well, look at who Republicans nominated. So I think Eric Schmidt for the Republican establishment was absolutely the safer bet. We've seen a lot of, um, you know, Republicans rallying around Schmidt, forming a super PAC, pouring money into his campaign. But um, the issue with that is that we know that President Trump notoriously doesn't get along with Mitch McConnell and some of these um, establishment uh, figures backing Schmidt. So he was walking a fine line. Eric 2022, I guess, is the um, the, the the phrase of the day. Um, but we'll have to see. Missouri should be an easy pick up for Republicans. So it's interesting that this primary has garnered so much coverage because of this extremely controversial figure who's quite frankly not a good political candidate. Yeah, it's such a Republican state, but if if any candidate was going to put it in range for Democrats, it would be um, Greitens, which I think is part of the reason. Josh Hawley begged Trump to endorse a non-Greitens figure, uh, but uh, Trump doesn't. <laughs> do what he's told. It's not not, not who he is. Uh, well, we'll be following these election results very carefully, and we'll talk about them more uh, tomorrow and later in the week. Julia Manchester, thank you so much for breaking it down. Thank you. And we'll have more Rising right after this. There's some breaking news. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has touched down in Taiwan. and We have some footage of that. There she is exiting her plane uh, and landing in Taiwan. So there it is. This has happened. We're doing this for some reason, as we talked about earlier in the show. We're not quite sure why. It doesn't appear that the Biden administration wants her to do this or condones it. However, it clearly 
could have stopped her if it wanted to and didn't. So we're all trying to read into the subtext of if you don't want her doing this, why is she doing it? Yeah. So what is the what hidden message are we trying to send? This gets in the way uh, from from a kind of non-interventionist perspective, gets in the way of the strategic ambiguity of what the U.S. would do in the result of an invasion of Taiwan by yeah. China. We don't want China to invade Taiwan. I don't think anyone wants China to invade Taiwan. We don't want to actually have to stop China or to put an effort to stop them doing it because that could be the end of the world. So yeah. probably it's good to avoid the end of the world. But if saying maybe we would do something incentivizes them to not do it, then okay. So we just maintain this like, please don't. So we don't have, we all just kind of in a Cold War sense, don't do anything because we're all afraid of doing something. Yeah, and, and if that keeps the world safer, fine. But this is a violation of that uh, in, in some sense, in, from some ways of thinking. She is the first uh, high-level official to visit in some time. Again, why? We have no idea. Right. So she is the first, the, the highest-level official to uh visit since the 1970s. However, there has been, per our guests that we talked about a little bit earlier today, an escalation of senior officials being sent to Taiwan through the Trump administration through now. So it's, it, it is this bipartisan escalation. Unclear why. I do think I agree with you that some of the messaging around Biden doesn't want this, but Nancy's there anyway, is inconsistent. And it's a weird choice at a time when Biden is being roundly criticized and has low poll numbers because of his uh, perception of being ineffectual, largely on a policy basis, but also with respect like, to things like this. You can't keep your Speaker of the House from following the basic desires of your administration. That doesn't seem like a good look. So if they are, if this is a kind of a coordinated provocation, a kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, cloak and dagger, if you will, uh, you know, a pretext, then it is a weird hit to take for Biden's public perception. For what purpose? What is the goal here? Yeah, I, it doesn't make sense because it just, it's the, the Biden administration hasn't outlined what the policy or the view here is. I get that we are entering a time of greater hostility toward and suspicion of China. I don't think that is wrong necessarily. Uh, uh, China's authoritarian government and their misdeeds just in terms of transparency with the pandemic. What does it even mean to be entering a time of greater hostility toward China? Well, this, this is what's been bothering me. It's been bothering me about the conflict in Ukraine too in the proxy war with Russia. What is the ultimate threat? Okay, you don't like China. Okay, you don't like Russia. Okay, you have geopolitical reasons why you want them to have less power. You can have all of those feelings, but at the end of the day, if you're not willing to get into an open conflict with a nuclear power, just sit tight and keep it to yourself. The, you're going to have to figure out well, other the ways to with China is, is experimenting on diseases, releasing them into the population and killing millions and millions of people and then lying about it and covering it up. That's why I, I think China is a more serious threat. They're a ser- more serious economic threat. Now, that is, that's, what, that's the issue. That does not uh, su- suggest that a military response, just as I would not say that the military response in Eastern Europe is wise, uh, that, that there should be any kind of military response to China. Absolutely not. We should not be, we are not prepared and shouldn't be prepared to fight them over Taiwan. Robbie, but we a, should think through policies. This is a COVID as bioterrorism take? Not deliberate, but by their their negligence and their covering it up, more people died than should have, even if it wasn't. I don't. I think it was deliberate, but. Okay, so the the point still stands that that's a whole other can of worms aside. That it does feel like esca- it's it's all a bluff. 
it feels like machismo brinkmanship this in this case obviously not especially gendered since we're dealing with nancy pelosi here but it does seem like a kind of bad faith brinkmanship that is um courting escalation perhaps not intending for it to ultimately lead to a conflict but playing a very high stakes game with other people's lives and whatever the motivations are whether we're talking about weapons manufacturing with respect to Ukraine and the bad optics of our secretary of defense being a Raytheon you know, a senior employee and the revolving door of it all, whether or not it's these um, broader geopolitical desires to quell, you know, quench Russia's power and, and disrupt, although it's causing a greater alliance between t- Russia and China's world powers, whatever the motivations are, if you're not ultimately willing to do the ultimate thing, which is to get into open conflict with any of these countries, then why are you doing it at all? And the, the, the answer to that question, the, the thing that I'm fearful of in so many you know, nuclear um, escalation experts that I've spoken to on my show are fearful of is that people are willing to go there, that there isn't the requisite fear of nuclear conflict that there used to be, that the nuclear strategy over the past few years has been manufacturing smaller nuclear bombs to make it easier to actually drop nukes without having the kind of cataclysmic consequences. Well, okay, but I don't think the threat of nuclear war means, that means we can never, by we, I mean, People can be should be free to criticize China and its policies, just like we are criticize free to criticize way. our the, own Nancy policies. Nancy Pelosi is doing a little something more, don't you think? Yeah, and I'm against it. But yeah. that doesn't that. But it's not because China is good or fine or their their attempts to become to to expand their sphere of influence to include more of the world. I don't want to live under Chinese style um, uh, communism, which involves both major restrictions of all sorts of right. Their restrictions during the pandemic are among some of the most repressive in the world. Um, yeah, everything else they have going on. Now, that, again, we should not enter into a policy of warfare with them. We should try to de-escalate. Because that threat is one to be taken seriously, we should try to not escalate tensions with them, which is the opposite of what we're doing. But it's not because they're great and they're fine and well, no one's arguing that, but it, it yeah. is, well, does feel perverse to be in a country that has so substantively stripped basic rights that are extant in much of the world, despite it, including much less democratic parts well, of the world, and say, I don't want to live under China, Chinese hegemony. I don't want to live in an American hegemony. Most of the world doesn't want to li- live under American hegemony, has been pushing back against our interference for decades and decades Okay, and well, decades. this is ultimately not, why I am not a leftist, because American hegemony is preferable to Chinese hegemony. Well, I don't, I don't root view. for American hegemony. I root I for either, the working but... citizens of America and the working citizens of China and the working citizens of Russia who are pawns in all of these geopolitical games. And I think that's why there is such an emphasis on the left toward international solidarity between peoples and not governments. Rooting for China as an administration, as an institution, as a government is a very different thing from having certain sentiments or relationship with the people who live in these kinds of countries who I think share our interests. Well, when I say China, I'm saying the Chinese government. I'm not rooting against China or the Chinese people or Chinese culture or any of those things, just the Chinese government, which is authoritarian. Now, I'm unrelentingly critical of our own government as well, as are you, and I think that's totally appropriate. I, I don't think it's any less appropriate to be critical of other governments as commentators and journalists and people discussing right, ideas. The, the Not our, should our government go out of its way to scream at them in a way that makes them mad or brings us closer to host- military hostility? Absolutely not. Of course not. Which is why I'm against this. It doesn't stop me, yeah, though, the, from saying I don't 
I do not agree with the policies of the government of China. But the question isn't the critique, right? The question is whether or not there are moves being made on a political level, on a governmental level, that amount to a kind of intervention in world affairs. Is the United States government trying to provoke an escalation with China? When uh, Joe Biden earlier this year, when asked, said that the United States would intervene and defend Taiwan, was that part and parcel of that same escalation? Was he any different than George Bush? Two, who got in trouble for saying something very similar when he was president of the United States. And why does there seem to be this persistent toe dipping into that particular arena? You know, I, I hope that we do have some clarity on that going forward. 26 Senate Republicans, including McConnell, is, have issued a statement saying we support Speaker of the House, uh, Speaker of the House Representative Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. Bipartisanship, not dead. Look yeah, at that. Well, this is the thing. We always get bipartisanship. <laughs> not dead, unlike the rest of like everyone on Earth, if there's a nuclear <laughs> if war. If there's a nuclear war. Like, but the, war is always bipartisan. Yep. You know, interventionism is always bipartisan. So I hope, if nothing else, that's a lesson that's being learned here. And a lesson, I would, I would argue, that should be taken up by folks like Andrew Yang and the Forward Party and other people who are hoping to build coalitions on a bipartisan basis and scoop up a lot of independents who are frustrated with this kind of behavior, I don't think you can do so credibly without having a firm stance against uh, anti-interventionism. And I would also argue um, forsaking the influence of corporate money and politics. But we'll see what happens mm. with that. I, I agreed with everything until the corporate money. Yeah, Rob, Robbie loves corporate money. <laughs> I love corporate money. I don't love politics. <laughs> Tomorrow on Rising, The Hill's Hannah Trudeau will be here to discuss the very online Pennsylvania Senate race of Democrat John Fetterman and Republican Dr. Oz. Looking forward to that. Mm. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye.